John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. Verse 19 to 34, John chapter 1. So we're continuing in our Meet Jesus series. And Nathan's going to be speaking, he's going to be sharing with us this morning from these scriptures. Now this was John's testimony. Now this is John the Baptist we're talking about, okay? Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely. I'm not the Messiah. So they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Okay, meet Jesus. The wrestle for identity and purpose, like it's a human experience, it's universal. The question of who am I and what am I here for, what am I doing with my life, uh, it can be seen all throughout our culture and society. It's in movies, it's in books, it's in songs. And these types of stories have broad appeal because in one way or another, we are all wanting to answer that question. We're all trying to answer that question. So to use an obvious but dated pop culture reference, let me just hold up the Matrix for a second. Thomas Anderson, that's actually the character's name. You might know him as Neo or The One. Uh, he was a man looking for purpose and identity. All right? He felt out of place, didn't know who he was or what he was meant to be. The first act of the film portrays him as someone who is checked out, disillusioned, aimless, depressed in life, wanderer. He then finds Morpheus and his crew and he finds a purpose there. And by the end of the movie, he's found who he is as the one. 
Now, this type of narrative is everywhere. It's not unique to the Matrix. It's just the first one that came to my mind, so I said, that'll do. Uh, I like to read fantasy novels in my spare time, which, as a parent, there isn't much of. Um, and, and in these types of novels, there's usually a child, often an orphan, uh, looking for identity and purpose. Where are my parents? Why am I here? I don't get it. And usually there's some sort of chance, powerful encounter with somebody or something that then gives them a sense of identity and purpose. And it doesn't matter who they were, they now know who they are and what they're meant to do, and they move on from that place, and they go with purpose. And uh, we're attracted to that story because it's this human struggle. And I think the inverse is true as well. I think we find ourselves attracted to people with strong sense of purpose and strong identity because we go, we want that. We want to be like that. So the storyline is all throughout society, all throughout our culture, because it's a human experience. And I'm sure you at one point or another has wrestled with that question. What am I doing? Who am I? Now, I work with children and teenagers. That's, that's my role here in New Life. I'm the children and youth pastor. I also do part-time um, as the Fremantle Christian College chaplain. So I'm in and around young people all the time. And uh, this question, this struggle of who am I and what am I here for, is something that comes up frequently. And I remember being 15 years old and having the, the, the pressure, the weight placed on me of, okay, it's time to pick your subjects because you need to get the right... At back then it was called TE, now it's ATAR. You need to get the right score and the right prerequisites to get into the course that you want that's going to get you the degree that you need, that's going to get you the job that's going to last you for the rest of your life. You got that, you're 15-year-old? This is what we do. And as a 15-year-old, I went, I don't, I, no, 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 thank you. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who I am or what I want to be. I don't know the job that I want. I've got some interests, but yeah, that feels like a lot of pressure for a 15-year-old. And some of you guys over here are going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some of you back there are remembering, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now that I've sort of set this scene, let's look at John 1, 19 to 34. Now, if you've got it there, have it, because I'm going to be going through it, but I'm sort of going to be picking out bits and pieces. I, I, I want you to see it in its entirety, but I'm not actually going to show it to you in its entirety. Okay? So one of the things that I love to do when I read the Bible, because I'm one of those persons who um, retains a, a lot of story information, um, I sit around the table and sometimes my kids are like, oh, you remember that story? from the Bible where this happened? And I was like, yeah, I think that's probably around John 8. They're like, how do you know that? Well, uh, mm, yeah, good question. Anyway, I retain that information, and so I, I often find myself reading the Bible going, I know this, and I have to check myself in that moment, go, doesn't matter if you know it. Slow down. Push through it for a second. And one of the things that I do is I try and push through the text into the world and create the image in my mind of what's going on. And I find that in that place I ask myself questions. What would this look like? Why would they say that? What would the bystanders think? Because for me at least, there's power in that sort of thinking. It gives me a different angle to look at the story. It gives me a new it can often give me a new revelation in that moment because I think a little bit different. So that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna show you how that works in my brain. We're gonna go through this and hopefully You'll, you'll see it. You'll, you'll follow where my funny brain goes. All right? So, here we go. In verse 
19, it says, Jewish leaders sent people to go and ask John, who are you? Now, look, that's a real simple question. Who are you? But what does it tell us? Well, the Jewish leaders were the kingmakers of the Jews. Israel was under Roman rule at the time, but Rome allowed an amount of sort of political autonomy, particularly as it related to religious beliefs. So these Jews, these Jewish leaders, were the religious leaders of the day. Now, they're well-versed in the Torah, and because of this, they're on the lookout for the fulfillment of messianic prophecies, because they know God has promised that being underneath someone else, in this case the Roman Empire, was not the fullness for Israel. And so they're going, God, this is not it. Where's the Messiah? Is he coming? Is he coming? They're looking. So they sent people to John to suss him out. What this tells me is that John's ministry was causing enough of a stir to get attention from people with political power, those kingmakers. And I find this to be quite fascinating because John is someone with no strong backing. He didn't come up under as a disciple of a particularly wise or famous rabbi. He sort of just appeared in the desert. This is the man who spent the formative years of his life in the wilderness, arguably alone, Luke 1.80. John grew up and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. I don't know if you've thought about this, but John would have been young when his parents died, because his parents were old. That was why it was a surprise they got pregnant at all. We don't know what age, but at some point, they died, and he went to the wilderness. So this story takes place when he's... a just for argument's sake, about 30 years old, because he's not that much older than Jesus. How long has he been in the wilderness? How long has he been in the water? See, funny questions make you think. This is the crazy man from the wilderness who eats locusts and wild honey, who wears camel hair clothes, Mark 1, 5 to 6. And yet, it says all of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. I imagine this is not dissimilar to (laughs) something going on in a country town and all of Perth driving out there to see. There's nothing out there to see but a man. Just think about the power of God working on John's life to create this kind of stir. It reminds me of a quote that's attributed to, or as I discovered, misattributed to, depending on who you read and who you're going to argue with, John Wesley, and it says this, when you set yourself on fire, people love to come and watch you burn. The point being, when your heart is alive and your passion comes through and you're moving with the power of God, people are drawn to that. John's in the wilderness baptizing people. All he ever did was set himself on fire every day, stand out there with no regard for what anybody thought and preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Be baptized for the repentance of your sins. Make a change, people, because change is coming. If you fast forward a little bit into Jesus' life for a moment, you get to Mark 11, and the Jewish leaders are chatting with Jesus, or trying to trap him, really. Um, And they say to him, by what authority are you doing and saying the things that you're doing and saying? Jesus goes, okay, fair question. Let me ask you one, because that's how it worked. You just sort of ask questions at each other until one falls. And... uh, He goes, John's baptism and ministry, was that from heaven or was that from man? And I I imagine them all sort of huddle, huddle, come on. 
can't, we can't say heaven. Why not? We can't say heaven because then he'll, say, he'll be like, well, why didn't you believe him? Okay, we'll say man. We can't say man either. Why not? We can't say man because the people, the people think John is awesome. They think he's a prophet. If we say man, we devalue his ministry and then the people will hate us. Uh, we don't know. Well, I'm not telling you either then. The point here is that John, operating in the power of God, was so impacting the region that these religious political leaders would not sit on one side or the other. They couldn't because Jesus would pin them for their lack of repentance or the people would pin them for devaluing John's ministry. So let me move to verse 20. And my version, New Living Translation, says, He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Now, I love that. He came right out and said, I'm not the Messiah. You see, John is someone who knows with wholehearted conviction who he is and who he is not. It's a settled issue in John's heart and his spirit. They came and they asked him if he was the Messiah, but with no hesitation and no reservation, no, I'm not. Now, that they even asked this question shows the extent of the power of God in John's life. They're looking for a Messiah and someone in the desert is moving with power and authority and conviction. They're going, this could be the guy. Let's go and ask him. Now, I like to imagine this crossing their faces. No, you're not the Messiah. Um, Okay. Verse 21. Well, then they asked... Who are you? Are you Elijah? So now they begin to move down their list. They got a little list. Cross off Messiah. Question one, are you the Messiah? No. Okay, next one on the list. Uh, Are you Elijah? Again, this question reveals something significant. The prevailing thought at the time was that Elijah would precede the Messiah and anoint him, thereby revealing his identity to him and to Israel. Under that thinking, the Messiah doesn't even know that he's the Messiah until Elijah anoints him. So in asking John if he was Elijah, they're actually showing that they're convinced that John has something to do with the Messiah. Which is correct, just not what they were thinking. Now as a side note here, you might notice a a seeming discrepancy if you've read various, the four Gospels. Um, between John's words here, I'm not Elijah, and Jesus' words in Mark 11:14, where he says, yeah, John is Elijah. And what you need to understand is that the Jewish leaders were coming to John, and the specific question they were asking is, are you the actual Elijah from the book of Kings? Because Elijah didn't die. We have no record of him dying. Chariot comes, one of my favorite kids, one of my favorite kids' stories. My, my nana used to have a bike. Uh, a storybook of that at her place. That was my one. That was my storybook to read. Um, chariot comes down, off he goes. Elisha returns, and they're like, oh, we'll go and find his body. He's like, don't bother, he's not there. Oh, no, we'll go and do it. Okay, whatever, do what you want. I'm not going to stop you. They come back, we can't find it. I told you. <laughs> so there's a belief that exists that actual Elijah is going to return. There's two people in the Bible who record it as like that type of thing. Elijah's one, the other one just says, walk with God, and then wasn't. Yeah. So John's saying, I'm not the actual Elijah, 
And Jesus is saying, he's a type of Elijah and he is the type that is prophesied to come before the Messiah. The type of Elijah being the type of man who stands before kings and council and says, this is the word of God. You think about the life of Elijah, stood before Ahab and said, you know what, because of your actions and your choices, no rain. Is that you, troubler of Israel? I'm not a troubler of Israel. Then they move on. Are you the prophet we're expecting? This is what I'm up to. Sorry. Are you the prophet we're expecting? No. This is a reference to Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 says that God will raise up a prophet like me from among you and you must listen to him. What was Moses like? He took a people stuck in slavery and he led them into the promised land and into the freedom that God wanted for them. A prophet like Moses sounds a lot like the Messiah to me. Taking a people from slavery to sin into the freedom, into worship. And we've talked about this. There's a great teaching Jason did in the Passover season about that. Um, uh, Freed to worship. If you want to go back in our archives and have a look at that. Um, The Jewish leaders believed that the prophet was separate to the Messiah. I've just explained to you, I think that's not quite right. And uh, the early apostles also, my, 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 um, my opinion agrees with theirs. Uh, um, in Acts 3.22, Peter is preaching. This is the same context where they're like, mm, these guys have been with Jesus. Do you know that story? These, uneduca- these uneducated men. And the, the wise people go, ah, those guys have been with Jesus, we can tell. Peter says, he references the prophet connects it to the Messiah, Jesus. So now the people are a bit puzzled. They genuinely believe that John had something to do with the Messiah, but he's denied being the Messiah. He's denied being Elijah. He's denied being the prophet. So then in verse 22, we get this exasperated demand. When I read it, I hear exasperation. Maybe that's just my parent life coming through. I have three small children. If, you know, let the, let the hearer understand. Anyway. Uh, then who are you? John replies with the words of the prophet Isaiah. Now, whenever I read this, this is what I hear. Remember, funny little brain. I'm a voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. Yeah, someone started. I heard it. When asked the crucial question we all face, who are you? There's no hesitation for John. He uses the word of God to define himself. He knows who he is because he's allowed God to be the one who defines him. His identity is found in being who God says he is. Oh, for a people that live like that. For a generation who know who they are first and foremost as God's beloved children. Sons and daughters who know they have a good father who delights in them. Can you imagine what a generation like that looks like. A generation of young people freed from the pressure of the world, freed from the compulsion to fit in, to find acceptance among fickle people and constantly changing societal norms. People who are anchored in their identity and are not buffeted by the wind and the waves. Do you know what's needed for that to happen? It needs an older generation who know that truth, who speak that truth to young ones. None of us are exempt from needing to know this, needing to know who we are. 
there's a children's story called You Are Special, written by Max Licardo. Some of the mums and dads, oh yes, I know this one. It follows the story of Punchinello. Punchinello's a Wemmick. Uh, it's a wooden toy doll thing. Um, he exists in a world where your every, there he is, where your every action and word is judged by those around you. If you do or say good things, you're successful in your endeavours, you get gold stars. People come along and go, great job. Uh, and if you do or say um, silly things, or you're clumsy, you're unsuccessful in your endeavours, people come along and go, black dot. Now, Punchinello is covered in black dots because he's, he is clumsy, he's unsuccessful in everything he tries, and no matter how hard he tries to do good, to be good, it fails. And people laugh, and people, the other Wemmicks, stick black dots on him. One day he meets Lucia. She has no dots and no stars. It's not because people haven't tried. In fact, Punchinello tries to stick a gold star on her because she's kind to him. Here. And it just falls off. How'd you do that? Lucia and Punchinello develop a relationship and Lucia says, why don't you come and meet Eli, the creator? This is the God character in the story. He's the one who made you, Punchinello. Yeah, I don't know. There's some initial hesitation and Punchinello eventually agrees and goes and meets with Eli. Eli tells Punchinello that the dots and stars only stick if people let them. Eli begins to speak over Punchinello how much he loves him simply because he made him. He's not a bad Wemmick. And he asks Punchinello, why don't you come back tomorrow so I can talk to you again? Come back every day. And Punchinello agrees. And as he leaves, he says, he pauses in the doorway and he says, I think, I think he really means it. And in that moment, a dot falls off. And that's where the story ends. Look, it's a simple story. But for people who know who they are, who let themselves be defined by God and what he says about them, it's a life-transforming truth. And the weight begins to drop off because you know that the only voice that truly matters is the voice of God speaking to you about who you are. It's what we as disciples of Jesus are called to be. John lived that life. He cared nothing for what anybody said. You brood of snakes, who told you to come and repent? Well, we came because you said repent. Right? He doesn't care. As disciples of Jesus, we're called to be a people who stand firm in their identity, knowing who we are because we listen to the unchanging voice of God. So how do we do it? We get into God's word. Do you want to know what God says and thinks about you? You'll find it in the Bible. Because he's unchanging. And his, the value that he places on people is unchanging. An identity shaped by the words of God is built on an unshakable foundation. And there is power in that to shape the people and the region around you. Just look at what it did in John's life. So my question here is, do you know who God says you are? Do you need to know who God says you are this morning? So from the issue of who am I, the passage now moves to 
purpose. What am I here for? Verse 24 and 25, Then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, If you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? In these verses, the leaders are challenging John's authority in his ministry. If you aren't these people, then what are you doing out here baptizing? In Jewish thinking, baptism was part of ritual cleansing. It happened fairly regularly, but it was something that one did to themselves. Gentiles were the ones who needed to be baptized into Judaism. And that was done by someone else. The Jews did not see themselves as needing to repent, a common theme throughout the Bible. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Remember that John's baptism was for the repentance of sins. And so given John's denial of being the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, the Jewish leaders did not understand where his authority came from. John's reply is to say that there is one right here in the crowd with a ministry that follows mine but is so much greater that I am not worthy to even do the most loathed activity of untying his sandals. Now, disciples of a rabbi or, or disciples of a prophet used to do the menial tasks, collect the food, get the water, so that the prophet or the rabbi could focus on the teaching and the speaking. But there were even some tasks that the disciples didn't do. And in the rabbinic tradition, a rabbi was not allowed to make his disciples untie his dirty, gross feet, untie the sandals. It just wasn't something that you did. And here is John moving in the power of God, going, I'm not worthy to do even that most loathed activity. Such is the greatness of the one who follows. John's implying that his authority comes from the one coming after him, who is among you now, but you don't recognize him. In fact, John didn't recognize him either. That comes a bit later. But John knew who he was and what he was meant to do. And then we get this nice little, oh, I've left it off. There's a little geographic statement about this happened in Bethany, east of the Jordan. The text then moves on to the next day. John sees Jesus coming towards him and he proclaims this beautiful statement. Look, or behold, I like behold, I feel like it's more powerful than look. But Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about. I've never really noticed this until I was preparing to talk from this. John says, I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. John didn't know. He didn't know who the Messiah was. The passage moves on, and we almost get this parenthetical section where John explains exactly how he knew. God told him, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. Now, I want to go back just a little bit to this issue of John not knowing who the Messiah was. I guess in my head I'd always assumed that it was some sort of insider secret. John knew, Jesus knew, winks, that type of deal, because it wasn't the right time. But John's going, nope, I didn't know. I was like, wow, you didn't know, but it didn't matter. John knew who he was. John knew what he was called to do. And so he stands in the Jordan and he proclaims the truth. From scripture, we don't know how long John's ministry was. A couple of months, a couple of years, was it a decade? We don't know. But for John, it didn't matter. He knew who he was. He knew what he was called to do. I wonder, this again, funny brain business, I wonder did John stand there and never get discouraged going, I don't know when this is going to happen? Did John stand there going, it doesn't matter. I know what I've got to do. I'm preparing the way. 
He might come 10 years after I die, but I've done my bit to prepare the way. Disciples of Jesus today are presented with the same responsibility. We're called to be disciple makers who introduce people to Jesus, teaching them to obey his commands and point to his soon return. This is the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew 28. Some people are like, we don't know when Jesus is coming back, so just ignore that part. John didn't know when Messiah was coming. Did he ignore that bit? No. So as disciples of Jesus, we call people to know him, to love him, to obey him, and to recognize that he's coming back and live out of that reality. Now, some of the young people in this room right now have, might have been hoping for a more concrete way to answer the question, who am I and uh, what am I here for? That, I haven't given you that, but I want to say that who you are and what you are here for are not defined by your job. They're not defined by who accepts you into their groups, what sports team you support. Those things are all peripheral. They're secondary or even further out from the core. I find a very challenging statement someone once said to me. When you introduce yourself to someone, are you like, hi, I'm Nathan and I'm an engineer? Or like... It's so, our occupation is so closely linked to our um, identity when we, when we meet people. Society has shaped it that way. But should it be? I think the answer is no. Now, I don't know, I'm, I'm not suggesting then that I have this wonderful response in that moment. Because like, I do it. I'm a youth pastor. Hi. Um, it helps them understand. <laughs> but those things are all secondary. They don't matter anywhere near as much. You are who God says you are. And what you're here for is to be a disciple maker as you move through your life. I wholeheartedly believe that if you can settle the issue of who you are, everything else falls into place. You worry less. You understand that a job is great. You might have one you love, but a job serves you. When I left high school, the end of 2004, I didn't know what I wanted. I applied to university, thought I would study psychology. I got accepted into that course, and then changed my mind. And I picked secondary teacher, chemistry. Got accepted into that, and said, I'll have a year off now. (laughs) Uh, Now, during year 12, I was having some struggles with depression, which, in hindsight, I believed, I believe now, were directly linked to not knowing who I was. It was an identity issue. And it created an aimlessness in my soul and in my spirit. Graduate end of 2004. June 2005, I moved to Kansas City for six months. I'm in a program called Fire in the Night. My days start at about 2 or 3 p.m. and move all the way through to 6 a.m. During that time, I was spending six hours a night from midnight to 6 a.m. in the 24-7 house of prayer because someone's got to be in there making it sure it's 24-7. Right? I was there six months of my life. That was my schedule. Um, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But my parents kept saying it would be great. Uh, They had recently returned from a three-week stint. So I went in June. They went in March. Oh, it's going to be great. And I remember them trying to explain to me how six hours in the prayer room works. And and me just going, there's no way. There's no way this is going to work. I can't do more than 20 minutes. I was put off by it, but I decided I'd give it a go. 
It seemed like such an impossible thing. What kind of people can sit around a room for long hours just praying? The weird kind. (laughs) Now look, as part of the program, they gave us some books to read. uh, One of which was called Pleasures Evermore by a man called Sam Storms. And it was all about how a relationship with God was meant to be enjoyable because God is enjoyable and he enjoys you. I found that to be a confronting reality. I got no problems believing that God loves me. Right? And even, I feel like this is true even for atheists. They're like, there is no God. But if there was, he would, by very nature of being God, love all people because that's what God does, but there isn't one. Anyway. um, So that wasn't an issue. It wasn't like, I don't know if God loves me. My issue was, I don't know if God likes me. I'd never even thought about it. And what I found myself doing was projecting onto God how I felt about myself. My failures, my insecurities. I didn't like things about me and went, if I don't, God must not. Now, it wasn't a conscious thing. But it's when I started to wrestle with the issue of God, does God actually like me? I started to go, I don't like me. <laughs> but the, this, the scripture says God does. You know, woe is me, I failed 15 times today. I'm such a terrible person. Or I swore I'd never do that thing again and here I am today. I'm doing it again. Oh, I don't like me. And it gets projected onto God. It takes over my thinking. But as I continued to sit in the environment of prayer and worship, hearing people speak about, again and again, God likes you. He's not a mad or a sad God. There is great gladness and joy in his heart. You are the apple of his eye. Earlier, Julie stood up here and talked about Hebrews, the joy set before him. I remember sitting one night going, the joy set before him is me. I'm the joy. On the cross, looking through time, he sees me. Whoa. It's both true, but don't hold too tightly to the theology of that. Um, I began to think maybe there's something in this. So I sat one night in the prayer room, opened up my journal. I'm one of those persons that gets a journal, fills about six or seven pages about it, and forgets about it, and then gets a new journal and does the same thing about six months later. Uh, I went digging through my journals. It's true. They're all about six, seven pages full and then nothing. <laughs> so I pulled out this journal. I sat down. I got nothing but time and nowhere to be. It's the middle of the night. The only thing open is Walmart, but I don't have an American license or a car, so I can't get there. I sit down. I'm like, you know what? I need this to be true. It became a desperate cry in my heart. I need this to be true. I need to believe this and I don't. So you know what? I'm going to brute force my way into this. Okay? That's a brute force just means I'm just going to keep hitting this wall with truth until I start to move through it and it becomes a reality for my heart. And I began to write, You delight in me. You enjoy me. I'm the apple of your eye. One glance from me in your direction moves your heart with such passion. You delight in me. You enjoy me. You like me. All these types of phrases, the things I was reading in the books, the things I was reading in the Word of God, and the truth that I knew I needed to believe, and I pushed and I fought for it in that night. Now, I don't remember how long it took. It wasn't days. I don't remember how many pages I covered. But there came a moment with the... 
And it became truth in my heart. I was like, I actually start to believe this now. And I did go back through my journals and I found one from the entry of my birthday, the actual 18th, my 18th birthday. And I had this impression on my heart when I was praying. Because I was homesick, turned 18, away from my parents. And I, f- I felt God with gr- full enjoyment, again, don't hold to the theology of this, full enjoyment and delight running from angel to angel. It's Nathan's birthday. Did you know? Have you seen him? He's down there. He's away from his family. He's in a place where he can encounter me. He's given up so much. It's his 18th birthday. Have you seen him? This is the one in whom is my delight. In that, I remember just a whoosh. Right? Now, it, this, this encounter hasn't um, made my life suddenly awesome and easier. But I know truth. I've experienced truth and I've made a resolve in my heart to fight for truth, the truth of who I am. I remember some Sunday mornings leaving my parents' house in my car, driving by myself in my car to church with just condemnation and weight on me. And it's like, oh, I'm such a bad person. No, I'm not. The truth is... God likes and enjoys me. And I would drive the 15 minutes to church and I would basically repeat for the full 15 minutes, here I am, God, your favorite one. Come and enjoy me. I want to feel it this morning. And it confronts our minds to speak that truth because in the moment we feel the condemnation from our own hearts. We feel the condemnation from the enemy. We don't deserve this. We haven't earned it. All of which is true. All of which is irrelevant. And so we fight. I fight to hold on to truth. This is who I am. This is what I say to these teenagers. Who you are is not your job. Who you are is someone who is enjoyed by God. I was chatting with one the other night who was like, I just feel like those days when I can't get to my Bible, just, oh. You know what? God loves that you wrestle with that. God loves that the desire of your heart is to do that. That means that you're trying to move towards him and he enjoys that. Do not beat yourself up about that. You just go again the next day. His mercies are new every morning. Don't forget this. Move towards him rather than beat yourself up. This is what it means to be someone who knows who they are. Their primary identity is someone who is enjoyed by God. And there is freedom in that place. You cannot spend six hours in a prayer room with someone you think does not like you. You can't spend 30 minutes in that space and enjoy it without wholeheartedly believing that the one that you're meeting with enjoys you. The prayer room is just down there. Let me ask you, let me ask you just a challenging question right now. If you don't find it enjoyable, what does that say about your view of God? That's for myself too. If you don't find putting yourself in the presence of God in a very intentional and deliberate way as something to look forward to and enjoyable, what does that say? I don't mean it to be like a criticism or a slap across the face. I've said it as a genuine challenge. It's it's something we have to fight for. What does it say? This is what I want to put in front of you this morning. Do you know who God says you are? Do you believe it? Are you like me? Yes, God loves me, but I don't think he likes me. Or do you still project those feelings onto God?
I feel like this, therefore he must. And this is, this is where I was feeling it this morning when I've been preparing for this, just doing my final preparations. This last question, do you need to fight for truth in your life this morning? Two examples from the Bible. And they came to me this morning and I haven't looked them up, so I apologise, I don't have the references. But there is, a, there is a man who brings his son to Jesus. And he says, can you please heal my son? And Jesus says, all things are possible for those who believe. And the man says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. I understand, but there's a disconnect. And he fights in himself. He recognizes the wrestle and he fights in himself. I believe, but help my unbelief. Or the woman with the issue of blood. She pushes through the crowd. She fights for the chance. She fights for the chance that there will be transforming power in just the edge of his clothes. Do you need to fight for truth this morning? I think we all do. (laughs) This is a fight that... It's a fight that's all the time. I find it's a little bit easier for me because I've fought this battle and, and wrestled with these truths again and again and again. And I know, I know it's true. Even when my heart lies to me, I know it's true. I want to invite you to come forward. If you're in that place, I need to hear God this morning. I need to believe truth. I want to fight for it. Nathan, I'm hearing the words that are coming out of your mouth, but there is even a, even a that's not true for me, or a, a sense of scoffing. Are you willing to fight and say, I want truth. I want to live from that place. I want the freedom from the condemnation that I wake up every morning with. The condemnation that I feel this great chasm between me and God and no way to get through it. Where my heart is cold and I know it. If you want to make that response this morning, I invite you to come forward. I'm going to pray now. You can hang around here and we'll have some of the the overseers and some of the the prayer team come and pray for you. you. Do you need to know who God is this morning? I invite you to stand because we're about to sing as well. But to come... Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are a glad God. We thank you that you enjoy us. We thank you for the example of John the Baptist, someone who knew who he was, understood what that meant and lived his life and changed and transformed the region. God, that we would be a people This community would be a people who transform the lives of those around them because we live free from the condemnation. We live free as those who know who they are, as we are defined by you, as my beloved. The joy that was set before you. We are the ones in whom is the fullness of your delight and your pleasure. 
And this morning, Holy Spirit, strengthen our hearts, strengthen our minds to fight. Because it is a wrestle. It's a wrestle. It's a wrestle for truth. Because if we can stay in the silence and the shadows, we lose. Holy Spirit, right now, I ask that you begin to speak to these ones. Speak to our hearts, God. I like you. As you are. You need to know that. As you are. It's not as a cleaned up, neat version of yourself. It's the mess that you are now. Colossians says, while we were alienated and enemies, while we were far away, Jesus came in that moment. He didn't come to a cleaned up and tidy people. He came into the mess and said, I like you. I like you. I want you. And you might need to just brute force your way into this like I did. And say, God, I need this truth. You just begin to say it over and over to yourself. The truth is that you like me, you enjoy me. Here I am, your favorite one. Come and enjoy me. I need this encounter. Like the woman with the issue of blood. For the chance that it might become reality for her. She pushed through the crowd. So Ken and the band are going to sing. Wait, I'm going to wait to hear the voice of God. In the midst of all the noise, you're all I want to hear.